Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part four of the case of serial killer Robert Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. We'll pick up right where we left off last week with the creation of Project Eclipse. Again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women. Stevie Cameron's book is written beautifully, with every detail of the Picton case covered. And while I'm giving you the meat and potatoes of this case, the book gives you a five-course meal with details that for the sake of this not becoming a 75-part series, you'll have to find in the book. As we learned last week, women from Vancouver's downtown east side were being murdered and simply vanishing into thin air at a cyclic rate. Family members, friends, and advocates for sex workers began to apply pressure to the Vancouver police. But their pleas fell on deaf ears and VPD seemingly couldn't have cared less, and they weren't shy about saying it. However, by late 1991, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police did take notice. And this time, they had a brand new tactic, something that was just catching on at the time but wasn't being used on a wide scale just yet, especially in Canada. This fresh new tactic? Criminal profiling. Thanks in part to Criminal Minds and Shamar Moore's Fine Self, or more recently, the Netflix series Mindhunter, most people are familiar with the BAU and how profiling works. But in case you've been living under a rock, let me give you the basic rundown. According to OJP.gov, the criminal profiling process is defined by the FBI as a technique used to identify the perp of a violent crime by identifying the personality and behavioral characteristics of the offender based upon an analysis of the crime committed. Investigators work off the profile created and narrow down their suspect list. This was exactly the intent of Project Eclipse. According to On the Farm, the RCMP called in Ron McKay and Keith Davidson to lead the project. McKay was an experienced homicide detective who had previously worked in Vancouver. He had been trained by the FBI in a year-long program for criminal profiling. He was the Mountie's first official profiler and had trained Keith Davidson. The pair would go on to become world-renowned and found an international group of profilers to train other officers that still exist to this very day. To sweeten the deal even more, Davidson and McKay called in five more profilers, all of them pretty well known in the field. One of the other five was Kim Rosmo, a.k.a. the father of geographic profiling, which is an investigative method that analyzes the locations of connected crimes to generate where the perpetrator likely lives. This was the A-team, the big three, 
The LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Miami Heat, circa 2010. If you know, you know. With all that expertise in one place, this could be a game changer. But before Davidson, McKay, Rosmo, and the team could deliver their profile, another woman went missing from the low track. Nancy Clark was a 25-year-old mother of two little girls, one eight and the other just eight months old. August 22, 1991 was a special day for Nancy's older daughter, Amber. You see, it was Amber's eighth birthday and she was excited. Eight is a big deal and Nancy and Amber were looking forward to spending the day together, eating cake, opening presents, and singing happy birthday. Although Nancy had her struggles, she played an active role in the lives of her two girls and she would never miss an opportunity to celebrate with them. But the day came and went, and there was no sign of Nancy. She didn't show up, call, nothing. Her family was worried. Not only would she have never missed Amber's birthday, she would have never left without telling someone where she was. The last time anyone had seen her, she was working the corner of Broughton and Gordon in downtown Victoria. What Nancy's family, friends, and police couldn't have known at the time was that Willie Picton had made a trip to Vancouver Island in August of 91, right around the same time Nancy disappeared, to work a job with his brother Dave. And the route Willie would have taken to get to the job site took him in very close proximity to where Nancy Clark vanished. Interestingly enough, while Dave and the rest of the workers had all traveled together, Willie chose to drive his own van and traveled solo, separated from the rest of the group. Uh, that's weird. In October of 1991, Ron McKay, Keith Davidson, Kim Rosmo, and the rest of the team got down to business. They spent a solid week brainstorming and analyzing 25 unsolved murders of sex workers in the area. They were chomping at the bit to present what they had found to the group of investigators working the unsolved missing and murdered women's cases. Their findings were jaw-dropping to say the very least. The profilers were able to link four murders together and they believed there was at least one serial killer on the loose and likely two others operating in the area. They also believed the intel they had gathered and the analysis of the data could help the Vancouver police capture these killers. So they brought all the investigators together and held a conference to present what they had found to VPD. And womp, 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 nobody cared. Not a single investigator so much as called the profilers back after the conference. They didn't move further in any of the investigations. Absolutely nothing happened. Kim Rosmo said it best when he spoke to Stevie Cameron. Project Eclipse was telling the VPD, you have at least one serial killer here, and maybe two or three. But the VPD was not jumping up to take on serial murder cases when they were handed to them. Why? Laziness, lack of resources, the cost, the energy required, but most of all, no roadmap. The profile didn't say what to do next. Project Eclipse was a huge failure, not on the part of RCMP or the profilers, 
but because once again, Vancouver police failed to do their job. You know that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but can't make him drink. While VPD drug their feet back in Port Coquitlam, Dave and Willie Picton continued trashing the family farm and being general trash themselves. In 1992, Dave Picton was arrested and charged with sexual assault after a woman working on a construction site with him claimed Dave got her into a work trailer and sexually assaulted her. She spoke out to the Vancouver province about Dave Picton, stating, You could smell him before you saw him. He had no respect for women at all. It seems Willie wasn't the only Picton brother with major hygiene issues. Before the trial began, members of the Hells Angels that were friends with Dave actually showed up at the woman's house and tried to intimidate her so that she would drop the charges. But it didn't work. Dave Picton was found guilty. His sentence? A slap on the wrist. Dave Picton would never even have to serve jail time. He was sentenced to probation and had to pay a $1,000 fine. And remember, although you wouldn't have known by looking at them, the Pictons had money. $1,000 wasn't shit to Dave. The victim was so afraid she packed up and moved far, far away. While Dave was out sexually assaulting women, Willie was moving in and out of the farmhouse, sometimes staying in his basement room, sometimes it was buildings on the farm, and other times he'd crash in RVs on or near Dave's job sites. He couldn't stand his brother. He would have rather slept in a filthy ramshackle barn than have to be in the same house as Dave. And the feeling was pretty mutual. Just down the road from the Picton Farm on Vancouver's downtown east side, women continued to vanish. Mother of two, Kathleen Watley was just 32 years old when she disappeared while working in area of the low track around Main Street and Broadway on June 6, 1992. Kathleen was a black female, 5'2", with a thin build. She was last seen wearing a yellow shirt and black miniskirt. According to International Missing Fandom, Kathleen was a previous victim of a crime when just five years prior to her disappearance, she was shot in the mouth in a dispute over cocaine. The shooting left her with a noticeable scar by her mouth. To date of this recording, Kathleen Watley is still listed as a missing person with a status of suspected homicide victim. Just four months after Kathleen's disappearance, on October 16, 1992, 40-year-old Elsie Sebastian vanished without a trace. Elsie was a mother of four. When she didn't call or stop by to see her children, they became concerned. Her 16-year-old daughter, Anne-Marie, pleaded with the Vancouver police for an entire year for help. She knew something was wrong. Her cries were ignored, and police wouldn't even so much as file a report. It wasn't until Elsie's sister-in-law, Anne Livingston, packed up her bags and moved to Vancouver that anything would happen. Anne was a community activist who worked with those living with substance abuse issues, and even Anne couldn't get the VPD to take her seriously at first. After multiple attempts to get a report filed, according to On the Farm, Anne had to make an absolute nuisance of herself 
and even resorted to threatening the police. And finally, years after Elsie's disappearance, an official report was made. But let's not get it twisted. The report was filed to appease Anne Livingston. That didn't mean anyone got off their actual ass to look for Elsie. And just like clockwork, another woman was gone. Little is known about the next woman who vanished. Her name was Teresa Louise Triff, and she went missing on April 15, 1993. Teresa was 23 with blonde curly hair and bright blue eyes. She stood at 5'2 and weighed 111 pounds. She went missing in 93, but her disappearance wasn't officially reported until almost 10 years later, in March of 2002. It's unclear whether that lapse in time is because no one reported her missing or if police refused to make a report. Eight months after Teresa vanished on Christmas Day in 1993, Lee Miner's family, including her little girl, sat around the tree. All the presents had been wrapped and the food prepared. They were just waiting on Lee to call and let them know that she had hopped on the ferry and would be there soon. She had called just days before and told her sister Erin that she would definitely be home for Christmas. And she was excited. The hours ticked on, the food got cold, the presents remained wrapped, and the phone never rang. There was no sign of Lee. Her mother and daughter were devastated, but her sister Erin was initially pissed. She thought Lee had just went out on a bender and ruined Christmas. You see, Lee Miner, like many of the women, struggled hard with her addiction. Her family had begged her for years to get help. Lee had tried multiple times to fight her demons, but they always returned. And in the years prior to her disappearance, her family watched helplessly as things spiraled completely out of control. The woman they now knew was a shell of her former self. Life and circumstances beyond her control had beaten her down and broken her spirit. But it hadn't always been this way. Lee was once vivacious and bright. She had grown up in California in a very close family. Things kind of started going off track in her teen years when she and her twin sister experimented with drugs and alcohol. It had gone from bad to worse when her father died suddenly of a heart attack. Lee was crushed. This wasn't the life she had planned. She sank into addiction. As Lee's teenage years faded into adulthood, she turned it all around. She met and married the love of her life. And finally, her family breathed a sigh of relief. Everything was coming together. Lee was happy and sober and remained close with her mom, siblings, and extended family. That happiness would be short-lived, though, and Lee Miner's life would come crashing down around her again, just several years into her marriage. Lee always knew that her husband suffered with depression, but what happened next, nobody saw coming. One day while in their apartment, Lee's husband shot himself. She tried frantically to help him, but it was too late, and he died right there in her arms. Understandably, she just couldn't deal with what she had witnessed. She tried. She fought. But a few years after his death, Lee turned to heroin to numb her pain. What she thought could help take away her grief, if only just temporarily, 
turned into a lifelong addiction. In 1986, she was sober again and for great reason. Lee was about to become a mother. She gave birth to a happy, healthy baby girl, and for a short time, things were going great. However, by the time her daughter was two, it was apparent that she just couldn't keep it together, and her mother and sister took the two-year-old and moved from California to British Columbia for a fresh new start. Lee remained in close contact, visiting frequently, and then finally moving too, so she could be near her daughter and family. The move certainly didn't help things, and after arriving in Vancouver, it wasn't long before Lee was working the low track to feed her addiction. Her family continued to plead with her to get clean, but her life continued to spiral. That Christmas day when she didn't call, initially they thought maybe she was just strung out and had forgotten what day it was. But that didn't make sense. I mean, her sister had spoken to her just days earlier on the 17th, and she told Aaron she would be there. Aaron had actually sent her money to make the trip. Their spidey senses were tingling. Something was off. By late February of 94, a whole two months had gone by with no word from Lee. Her family knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this time, something was wrong. They headed to where she had been staying on the downtown east side, but she wasn't there. And further, the people in the neighborhood weren't exactly thrilled about the family barging in and asking questions. So they turned to the Vancouver police. But shockingly, they weren't taken serious, although this time, a report was actually filed. According to Canada's Missing, a year later, on August 19, 1994, 17-year-old Angela Arsenal spent the day shopping with her common-law spouse and another male friend in downtown Vancouver. After shopping, they all went out to dinner. When they had finished their meal, Angela caught the bus alone and headed back to her apartment in Burnaby. When her spouse arrived back at the house, he found that the lights were left on, a window was left open, and Angela's purse was still there in the kitchen. Angela Arsenault has never been seen again. With Angela's disappearance, there were now 17 missing persons reports sitting on the desk of the Vancouver police, dating all the way back to 1979. All women all last seen in Vancouver with the exception of one, most of them indigenous, and all but one of them having substance abuse issues. The criminal profilers had revealed that they believed between one and three serial killers were operating in their jurisdiction. There were 25 unsolved murders and 17 missing persons reports. But all this information was about as useful as a one-legged man at an ass-kicking contest, since the Vancouver police, yet again, decided to do absolutely nothing about it. And things were about to get much worse, because the Picton brothers were fixing a pocket some serious cash. In 1994, their sister Linda sold part of the north end of the farm for $1.76 million dollars. And quickly, townhouses were built on the land. The development was named Parkside Place. The following year, the Pictons sold two more pieces of the farm. The city of Port Coquitlam bought one for $1.17 It became Blakeburn Park. 
and the second parcel sold for $2.3 million to the Coquitlam School District. It would become the new Blakeburn Elementary School. Math is hard, but that's a little over $5 million in a span of about a year. Split three ways, Linda, Dave, and Willie each pocketed roughly 1.7 mil. Willie Picton now could buy pretty much anything he wanted, so it's no surprise that his rendezvous on the downtown east side ramped up drastically, as did the disappearances. But before another woman would go missing, a grisly discovery would be made. On February 23, 1995, handyman and woodcarver Bill Wilson was headed to get some water from a slaw which is just the Canadian way of saying swamp or wetland. Bill wanted to clean off his car, which he had parked in a lot just off the highway. He was there selling his wooden crafts by the roadside to passerbys. He grabbed an empty water bottle, booked it across the road, and over to the edge of the slaw. He was just about to dip his bottle in the water when he noticed something. At first, he thought it looked like an old brown bowl so he went closer to check it out. When he got to what he thought was the bowl, he took his water bottle and flipped it over. And that's when he realized what he was looking at. This was no bowl. Instead, it was half of a human skull. But he didn't call police right away because he had a doctor's appointment and he really needed to go shopping. He didn't want to be tied up with police. He simply just didn't have the time. And Bill, well, he was no choir boy. He had previous convictions for indecent and sexual assault. Would the police even believe his story? Or would they try to pin this on him? He couldn't risk it. So he left and went on about his day like he hadn't just stumbled upon human remains. Try as he may to push what he had just found to the back of his mind and forget about it, his conscience started eating at him. And 24 hours later, he drove into the nearest town, flagged down an officer, and told him what he had found just a day earlier. Police met Bill Wilson at the scene, and he escorted them down to where he had found the partial skull. Investigators responded the area was roped off, and the coroner was called to the scene. And I just made that last part up. None of that actually happened. The area wasn't combed for more clues. A full-scale investigation wasn't launched. What actually did happen next was absurd. The two responding officers grabbed a camera, took a couple photos, and placed the skull in a box. They had a short discussion on whether or not the area should be considered a crime scene. You know, because they had just found half a human skull there, but decided, nah, the skull probably just floated down from a native gravesite. All that despite the fact that anyone with two eyeballs would have noticed that the skull was cut clean, vertically, from the crown down through the back of the head and the jawbone in the front, like it had been cut with some type of tool. Oh, and it also still had clumps of flesh clinging to areas around the eye, and part of the nose was still attached. It was obvious that it hadn't been there long. But sure, it probably just floated down from an ancient gravesite. Barney Fife could have pulled off a better investigation. The skull was placed in the box and taken to the police station, where it was set on a shelf to dry. 
Two days later, the box containing the skull and a police file documenting where the skull had been located ended up on the desk of RCMP Detective Tim Slay. Upon examination, he determined immediately that this skull belonged to the victim of a homicide. Slay sent it off to the pathologist. The pathologist was able to determine several things. The partial skull belonged to a woman in her 20s. She had died somewhere between one and two years earlier, but the skull had recently been dumped in the swampy area where it was found, at the most a couple weeks prior, because for one, there was no evidence of damage by animals. And two, the skull was covered with adipocere, or grave wax which according to ScienceDirect.com is a waxy substance formed post-mortem when fats in the body break down and combine with water. It is found most often when fat from a body is in a cold, damp, oxygen-deficient environment. The amount of adipocere on the skull told the pathologist that it had been lying in a damp environment unexposed to the elements for at least a year or two. The pathologist also theorized that the skull had been cut in half with an electrical saw by someone who knew how to cut through bones, but likely wouldn't have been a medical professional because there were errors in the anatomical cutting. Not in the medical profession, but knows how to cut through bones. Like, maybe a butcher? An identification of who the skull belonged to wasn't immediately made. So the coroner called in a forensic anthropologist to reconstruct Jane Doe's face, hoping someone would come forward to identify her. But to date, no one has. What no one knew at the time was that some of Jane Doe's remains would later be recovered on the Picton farm. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Just a month after Jane Doe was discovered in March of 1995, 27-year-old Catherine Gonzalez vanished. Catherine was originally from Tremens, Ontario. According to the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, she was homeless and frequented the Broadway and Fraser area of the downtown east side. She was well known to police for committing petty crimes like shoplifting and stealing tools to feed her habit. Her last known worldly possessions were a ring, some condoms, shoelaces, an earring, and $20 in cash. Catherine had a daughter who was five years old at the time of her disappearance. Tragically, the father of the child was shot to death in his home a year after Catherine went missing. In the span of a year, this little girl lost both her mother and father. In April of 1995, another Catherine went missing. This time, it was Catherine Knight. Catherine was 28 when she disappeared. Catherine Knight's story, like many of the women who found themselves working the downtown east side of Vancouver, was heartbreaking. According to On the Farm, Catherine was the youngest of nine children. Her father was a raging alcoholic, and the family was so poor that the house they rented had been so ran down it was condemned. Her sister, Jerry, recalled to Stevie Cameron what life was like growing up. We all grew up in the same environment with physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, and we're all survivors of that. Going on to say, we were all sort of abandoned, left to fend for ourselves. 
When I was really little, I used to sleep in the Goodwill boxes they put out on the street corners. That was my safety net. Our dad would come home drunk and you'd beat it out of there. I remember feeling sad when they got rid of the boxes. I wondered if there were other children out there who used to sleep in them. All of the older children booked it the hell out of there as soon as they could. But with limited education and resources themselves, there really wasn't much they could do to help their baby sister. Jerry went on to talk about her sister, Catherine. She was just so lovable. Blue-eyed, blonde hair, chubby-cheeked, and searching for what we were all searching for. Somebody to love us. But I think Kathy never felt loved. I think when you grow up with a lot of poverty, a lot of abuses, alcoholism, you don't know the meaning of love. At the age of just 15, Catherine Knight hit the streets and started selling her body to survive. By the time she was 23, her arms were riddled with scars and abscesses from IV drug use. Her sister Jerry had tried so many times to help Catherine get clean, but she'd end up right back on the street. Even though Catherine was in the depths of her addiction, she always kept in contact. Her sister knew something was wrong on May 5, 1995, when Catherine didn't call. You see, it was Catherine's 29th birthday, and she always called on her birthday. But the phone never rang, and they never heard from her again. Next to disappear was 33-year-old Dorothy Ann Spence. Dorothy also belonged to a large family. She had five brothers and three sisters. Her sister Rebecca posted about Dorothy on MissingPeople.net, writing, She had a heart of gold, very caring. She would call me up on the phone, and if I wasn't home, she would sing a little tune on my answering machine that would make me laugh. She had a great sense of humor. Dorothy, our other sister, and I would always be making each other laugh with our little escapades. According to JusticeForNativeWomen.com, Dorothy Ann Spence was last seen on August 17, 1995, panhandling under a bridge in Vancouver. She remains missing to this day. The last woman to vanish in 1995 was Diana Melnick. Diana came from a loving, upper-middle-class family. She attended private school, and according to a woman who knew Diana during her school years, she loved horses, heavy metal music, and gossiping about boys. And she was always so happy. But by 1995, Diana was living on Skid Row, addicted to drugs, had a lengthy criminal record, and a habit of not showing up for court. On December 27, 1995, Diana was supposed to appear before the judge, and this time not for criminal charges. This time it was to find out how the assets of her grandmother's estate would be divided. You see, Diana's grandmother Patricia had died just a year earlier, and she had left most everything to her daughter and her two grandchildren. Her husband and Diana's step-grandfather didn't like that too much, and he had tried to contest the will in court. And we're not talking about chump change either. Her grandmother's estate was worth almost $6 million. You can see why Step Gramps had contested. But he had lost, and Diana and her brother 
had become instant millionaires. But Diana didn't know any of this because she didn't show. In fact, no one would ever hear from Diana again. The last time anyone had seen her was on December 27, 1995. Her family reported her missing two days later. And as if women disappearing from the downtown east side wasn't troubling enough, in 1995, four women had been murdered. Four murders that to this day remain unsolved. According to Justice for Native Women, Mary Ligouir was just 30 years old when she was brutally beaten to death. Her remains were found in August of 1996 on Mount Seymour. The last time anyone had seen her alive was in 1995 in the downtown east side of Vancouver. According to Canadian Crimepedia, investigators had linked the next three victims together. The murders were known as the Hemlock Valley murders, and they were linked because Tracy Olgid, Tammy Pipe, and Victoria Yonker were all sexually assaulted, strangled to death, and their bodies left in a similar fashion in remote areas of Fraser Valley. All three women were found in a two-month span. Initially, the Mounties believed a local roofer with a history of rapes had killed all three women, and possibly Mary Lidguir as well but he was ruled out through DNA. Next on their suspect list was the Green River Killer, also known as Gary Ridgway, but he too was eliminated by DNA. And the last suspect? Robert Willie Picton. So the RCMP began keeping an eye on Willie, and Willie knew it. DNA would later also rule him out, but that didn't stop investigators with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police from thinking that old Willie was up to no good. And the Picton brothers were about to make another move that would catch the attention of police and a few local politicians when they founded the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. What the hell is the Piggy Palace Good Time Society? That will have to wait for next week because we are out of time. Join me next Thursday for part five of the Pig Farmer series. You don't want to miss it. Things are just heating up. I'll be sure and link Stevie Cameron's book on the farm, Robert William Picton and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women in the show notes. Go out and grab a copy. Trust me, you won't regret it. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.